You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Road Trip Edition! Ah! Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is a program promoting secular humanism and scientific skepticism that is produced by the Winnipeg Skeptics and the Humanists, Atheists, and Agnostics of Manitoba. You can email your questions, comments, or criticisms to us at lueepodcast at winnipegskeptics.com, or you can reach us on Twitter or Facebook at slash lueepodcast. So, Rochelle, uh, we've got a bit of business to clean up, I guess, after the last episode that we were on together. Oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, so on the climate change episode, we got some uh, feedback from a concerned viewer uh, that it indicated the um, we got one piece of it wrong. Uh, and that was uh, the 800-year lag. Uh, so the story is on that. Uh, the climate change denial claim, uh, based on the Vladivostok ice cores, I believe, is that CO2 can't possibly cause warming uh, because it lags temperature increases uh, by about 800 to 1,000 years. So that's uh, not entirely true. And I may have not been uh, overly clear on on stating that. Uh, So basically when you're in at least the recent few cycles of glaciation, what happens is uh, if you imagine yourself, I guess, over, uh, like above the plane of the solar system, uh, you can see the Earth moving around, uh, you know, circling the sun, uh, and kind of weebling and wobbling its way through. And and as we learned, that was the Milankovitch cycles. Right. So at some points, those cycles all align and result in either a significant increase or decrease in solar forcing, which is the energy that the surface of the Earth receives from the sun. Uh, major increases will cause, will set off warming trends. Uh, decreases will set off cooling trends, which ultimately lead into ice ages. Right. And end ice ages as well. So what will happen is the Milankovitch cycles will start the process off and either warm or cool the ocean. And a cooler ocean holds more CO2. Right. Therefore... Uh, depending on which way your cycle is going, you're either going to uh, have a positive feedback cycle in which the Milankovitch cycles warms the ocean slightly, which puts more CO2 into the atmosphere, which warms, which puts more CO2, which warms, etc., etc., etc. And then you have global global warming, enough to melt kilometer-thick sheets of ice. Uh, conversely, on the opposite way, if the Milankovitch cycles decrease the amount of energy that you get from the sun, you're going to cool the oceans, store more CO2 in the oceans, and then lead to uh, a long-term cooling trend. And that's going to send you into an ice age. Uh, So the anti-climate change or, or climate change denialist claim is based on one source of data, and I believe it's the ice cores, and I'll put a link to the video that explains uh, the, uh, those ice cores, their relationship, and, and has uh, one of the main architects of climate change denial narrating and explaining their point of view, as well as the link provided to us on skeptical science. Uh, that was in the original show notes, mm-hmm. which explains 
all of that as well. Uh, and, and that 90, I believe 90% of global warming has been observed occurring after CO2 levels have risen, not the opposite, which is what the claim essentially is. Right. So you're essentially saying that the 800-year lag, eh, not so much? Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, glad we got that cleared up. Yay. Hello, this is Greg, one of the hosts for this week's episode of Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Just a quick uh, note on the audio. We were in a museum and a lab uh, for most of the episode recording these segments, so the audio quality might be a little less than what we're usually used to putting out. Enjoy the show. So we're here at the uh, Ty Royal Tyrell Museum. Uh, today's hosts, we have uh, Robert Schindler. Hey. Rochelle McCullough. Hello. And myself, Greg Christensen. So the first, uh, the first exhibit that we were greeted to was uh, a really interesting, um, uh, what do they call it, the, Al Al the Albertosaurus? Bone, Albertosaurus bone bed. That's right, yes. It's a diorama of what the Albertosaurus would have looked like in the period that they lived in and the Cretaceous, period? Uh, Cretaceous, Cretaceous yep. period? so roughly 65 million years ago I believe yeah or so 6,000 or 6,000 um, we're teaching the controversy today this is right this is right so the dinosaurs uh, these Albertosaurus there's about 20 of them in this bone bed which is essentially a sandbar speculation says that maybe they died via flood Quite possible. Not Noah's flood. Don't get excited now. Yeah, don't get excited. No, this is probably just a you know flash flood from a torrential downpour, mm -hmm. or no, that would be it about a torrential downpour. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Here we have we have about three Albertosaurus staring us down right now. Right, mm -hmm. we're looking yeah. down their snouts at us and, and sort of the eyeing sheer, us up. The and, sheer size of these things. Yeah. This is. Uh, Roughly, what we're what we're looking at is um, relative, maybe like a like a large hot dog to uh, to Robert Schindler. Yes, yes. So, so if we were to go to a restaurant scale. and order a large hot dog. Yeah, that's that's really what we're what we're. Yeah, what we're Costco. Go to Costco, Costco, get a Costco hot dog. That's right. Yeah, put some sauerkraut on us, and that would be my sweater. Yes, that's correct. So, pretty scary. Uh, these kids around here are looking like a meal to the baby. There's also a little baby, but. Uh, I think that we'll pass through safely and uh, continue on to the next exhibit. Mm -hmm. We're here at exhibits number two and three. This is an arbitrary naming system based on the order which we looked at them. Or so looked at them, yeah. yeah so we're still in the Alberta Unearthed that's uh, right. exhibit. Uh, and we've got uh, one that's really, uh, really cool. It's called the Changing Earth, and it shows what the Earth looked like uh, through all of uh, our known geologic history, I believe. Yeah, and there's a red dot uh, to indicate where Alberta was in each of these in each of the time periods. Right, and there's many times in which Alberta was completely submerged. Yeah, some of which it was carved up by a large inland sea. That's right. Uh, other times it looks largely like it does today. Yeah, you know some very large dinosaurs roaming around. Yep. We've got um, another exhibit number three uh, about evolution that um, there will be a picture to it in the show notes. It's, it's an amazing yep. and in intuitive, ingenuitive... Uh, it's an it's, it's interesting look at uh, natural selection, I would believe. So, so what, the, what it is is uh, you press a button and then you see, 
all the flowers around this display turn red and you have to try and hit the butterflies which are varying colors from yellow uh, orange well, and red so and you try and hit them and it counts how many of the same color that you hit the background field so, is red so that makes yes. the red butterflies incredibly hard to see that's right um, and that represents a trait that would be passed on to successive generations throughout right. millions of years eventually you're probably going to wind up with nothing but red butterflies right. so each of us played the butterfly game yeah. and uh, our scores are as follows um, this is in order of red, yellow, and green. So Rochelle, 1, 12, and 19, which means that Rochelle caught and ate those various colors. So um, green was definitely on the losing end. The Gregosaurus, uh, zero red ones, eight yellow ones, ten green ones. So Greg was pretty hungry at the end of the day. So yeah. I, was, I was hungrier than Rochelle, I think. Yeah. So, but the thing is, I'm still a reasonably successful predator. However, the Robosaurus, 5 red, yeah. 16 yellow, 17 green. Yeah, uh, he's, I was full. Yeah, he's yeah, obviously good. able to... He's the apex yeah. predator of the, of the butterflies and more than likely able to uh, pass on his genetic material to his offspring. So you're saying that, uh, you know, if I was going to choose an evolutionarily uh, more advantage mate in this situation, I should probably choose Rob. Yes. <laughs> That's this is also a very good idea. <laughs> so here we are, Rob and I are standing in front of a fossilized critter known as the Elasmosaur. Alberta, Alberto, Albertan, I can't even say it. Alberta Nectes. Alberta Nectes. There you Ooh, go. Ooh, I got that one right. Yes. And uh, one of the information placards says that uh, the Loch Ness Monster was actually thought to be... Uh, An, uh, a lucky elasmosaur that survived. Elasmosaur that survived, yeah. However, uh, and we'll put pictures in the show notes, uh, we can see that the, the creature has an incredibly stiff neck and is not at all represented in the traditional arched neck that uh, that the you see in all of, of Nessie the all out of the, the pictures of the Nessie neck. yeah so with a, the arched neck there's a there's a uh, an example of how the neck goes on the on the head side of the, the exhibit where you can actually play with the neck and show how and it, you can see how stiff it is and it is quite stiff and uh, judging by the, the vertebrae and that it, it does support that hypothesis and looking, there's a, there's a couple of computer models as well, and looking from the top down, uh, as well as straight at it, you can see that the creature is only getting maybe, what, 15, 25 degrees in any direction? Oh yeah, about 15 degrees, I would say, in any direction. Yeah, so there's... So really tight, really tight neck. So you're uh, not having a body coming up, you know, almost at a 90 degree angle, and then again curving, uh, again, to give you that kind of hooked, hook messy... Neck. Which, which appearance by now everybody's everybody knows that it's been debunked and it was actually a bit of plasticine attached to a toy boat. However, the, this uh, further goes to, to support the that Nessie doesn't live in Loch Ness. So there you go. So we just toured by uh, one of uh, I guess the hallmark exhibits of uh, Tyrell, uh, Black Beauty. Mm -hmm. It's a, uh, one of the smallest Tyrannosaurus rex 
uh, there's some screaming in the background, and that's a kid getting eaten by a T-Rex. So let's just you know be careful here. Let's okay. So it's the smallest T-Rex specimen ever found. Yeah, which Black is amazing Beauty. because it's still much larger than your average U-Haul van. Oh yeah, you know, like it's 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 huge. Oh yeah, and uh, its bones were tinted black by the element manganese, mm-hmm. uh, and it was found by a couple of kids just above um, above a riverbed. So the river right had chewed, in Alberta. Yeah, yeah, it had chewed right through the valley and kind of gave a cross section. It was sticking out, I guess, of the uh, mm-hmm. of the riverbed. Yeah, which is interesting. Uh, they they took this bone. Uh, the, this whole skeleton over the skull, I think, actually, yeah. to Japan, to Tokyo, and they broke away the rock while kids watched, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it's it became a, such an amazing learning event. So um, it's now back home in Alberta, and uh, it's got a new, new prestigious place in the Terrell Museum. So we're in the Lords of the Land exhibit now, and uh, we're looking at some talons here. The first being of a golden eagle uh, that was uh, deceased near Sandy Point, Alberta recently. Uh, And the second is late crustaceous, uh, belonging to a... Oh dear, I'm going to try and pronounce this and not butcher it. Sauronitholistes legastoni. In any case, uh, it looks like a uh, raptor-type dinosaur. And... uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing. The, the talon shapes are so incredibly similar. The bone structure is very similar. Between these two sets of talons, there's 65 million years of evolution uh, going on. And really, the main difference is the, uh, the location of the, the grasping talon. Uh, it's a little bit more foreset in the, uh, the dinosaur, whereas it's a little bit more rear set in the eagle. Um, so it's very interesting. Yeah, so this is a cast of the, the head. Right. You can see it a little more detail because uh, they have it embedded in the original stone. Um, in the main exhibit, they've kind of displayed the skull separately, uh, cast of the skull separately, um, because it's one of the best preserved Tyrannosaurus skulls um, ever found. So it's quite beautiful. It is quite beautiful, actually. So we just passed a very large lizard from when, uh, when Alberta was a shallow inland sea due to the formation of the Rocky Mountains. The animal looks uh, positively ridiculous. It, it was, does. It was yeah. probably 80% neck, which yeah. I'm, I'm kind of wondering, yeah. what's up with that evolution? Yeah. He, the long part was the wrong end, first of all. It honestly, you have to look at the picture several, several times. Picture will be in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, you, you instinctively think that the head is at the other end, yeah. and the thing is, the long part is its tail. Yeah. But this thing's all backward. I sort of think that perhaps it propelled itself through the water like a snake, but uh, we'll have to keep looking and see if we can find some answers going for, forward. That would actually be a good. Uh, question for our special guest exactly coming up soon well and actually one of the interesting things uh that i really enjoy about the exhibits here at the Terrell museum is that they actually explain what kind of science they do and how they do it Uh, and so they explain some of the computer modeling that they've done of this animal's neck um, and have established that it was probably a stiffer neck as opposed to a long and flexible neck so it's interesting we'll have to find out a little more about it
So my name is uh, Dr. David Eberth. I'm a research scientist here at the Royal Tyrrell Museum, and I specialize in ancient environments of dinosaurs and bone beds. So what room is this? This is the main prep lab. The main prep lab, and I can see the museum through the window. So when you were going through the exhibits, you, mm -hmm. were, you were actually looking through here. So yes. you guys are actually on exhibit now. So you're Excellent. Oh, nice. you're, Excellent. So oh, the, should, you're some of the specimens. I should dress up. Well, we, we know that uh, there is a, the Gregosaur is actually the now an, yeah. is an exhibit. It's an exhibit at in the this Tyrell place, Museum. The Gregosaur. All right, so we've got, uh, we've got a, a group of uh, marine reptiles. So these aren't dinosaurs. These are okay. animals that are actually from the same interval of time, from the Mesozoic, and in particular because it's Alberta, from the Upper Cretaceous. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of Upper Cretaceous age rock here, um, and that is the uh, the rock that that generates most of the, right. the fossil material. So if you look at the history of dinosaurs spanning 150 million years, right, what we have in Alberta, what's available in Alberta to look at is really quite a small slice of that. Right. 150. It's about 15 million years worth of geologic time that's right. readily accessible at the surface so we can find things and excavate. So we tend to okay. focus and specialize in this museum. We specialize in Upper Cretaceous or latest Mesozoic or latest Age of Dinosaurs, if you will, okay. uh, material. Most of the material that makes uh, the museum famous and that we're known for is the, the dinosaurs, terrestrial material, right? Animals right. that are walking around on land. Uh, more recently, in the last 10 years or so, uh, our relationships with a lot of the, uh, the companies that are uh, working, uh, doing two things. One, extracting the... Uh, you know, the oil sands or tar sands, right. if you prefer, depending on your political stripes. Yes. Um, extracting that material from um, north of here mm -hmm. uh, are encountering lots and lots of marine reptiles, animals oh, that really? were swimming around in the sea at that time. And okay. those shales that host, that actually sit on top of the tar sands, mm -hmm. the oil sands, those shales actually are rich with marine biota. Oh, really? If right. they find a fossil in their digging process, are they obliged to stop or do they just go right on through? Well, if they if they can recognize it, you have to you have to appreciate how big the equipment is that they're mm -hmm. using and oh, okay, what the yeah. scale of their operation is. Mm -hmm. So, what we're finding is that they have they seem to have no trouble finding material and alerting us to it. Mm -hmm. And it in one hand it's a wonderful relationship because right. we get cool new specimens look at. I'll show you one in, in a second where you can actually okay. see the skull. On the other side of the coin, it kind of throws a bowling ball into our planning. Because every right. time we get a call from Suncor or you gotta whoever, go. and they're saying, yeah. hey, we've stopped our operation because we have something here that we think you might be interested in. Mm -hmm. to, you know, really, that those relationships are very important to us, and we represent the people of Alberta. Right? Yes. We're a provincial facility, and so we're obligated to you know, to and follow this stuff through. You wouldn't want to take the risk of losing, no, you know, absolutely a profound not. discovery. No, absolutely not. But you, as, you can, as you can appreciate, and as we go along, you're going to see that the whole scale of what we do here is one of that involves our time, our manpower, our storage facilities, mm -hmm. and we're dealing with very big animals, and we're dealing with oh, very big lost. pieces of rock, right? And so it, it really forces us to have to prioritize what we're doing okay. and set up you know, a, a direction for ourselves. Mm -hmm. So these, the other locality, aside from uh, the, uh, the oil sands and tar sands up north, uh, is an excavation site uh, down around Lethbridge in the, what's called the Bearpaw Marine 
section. Okay. And that also yields um, uh, marine reptiles, but those excavations are being conducted by companies that are going after what's called amylite, yes. or jewel quality, gem quality ammonites, okay. marine reptiles, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, marine invertebrates. Right. So this is a specimen that's come from that area. And again, although we've taken out most of the, the cranial material, you can see all of the ribs and the vertebrae that are just scattered around in the right. block, right? And then we're in the process of pulling all of those out. And so they don't come all assembled, ready to display. Sometimes. They sometimes come all scattered around. Yeah, and you, you, get, you get everything in between. You get okay. individual elements right up to complete tip of the nose, tip of the tail skeletons. Amazing. And uh, this is in between. So this is a single individual mm-hmm. that clearly laid out on the bottom of the seabed for a while and wasn't, was exposed long enough so that the decay of the carcass proceeded and allowed the bones to scatter around, okay. but was buried soon enough to keep those bones from being completely destroyed. So when you find something like what we're looking at right now, how long does it take you to determine how many creatures are here? We're, we're pretty quick uh, at doing that. And uh, the analogy I like to use for school kids, and I'll use it on you guys. Okay, perfect. Okay, and see if this makes sense. So, uh, so the flip side of the question that you just asked is basically, how do, you, how do you know what you're looking at? This stuff just looks like, you know, brown blobs to me. <laughs> right. And the answer to the question is actually fairly obvious. And imagine if you uh, had your bedroom at home exposed mm-hmm. to a tornado. And everything that was in that room that you know so well was torn apart and scattered all over the place. You'd be able to walk through the wreckage and go, oh, yeah, that's part of my alarm clock. And, oh, oh, yeah, that's part of my whatever, that that old guitar that I had, right? And so on and so forth. Familiarity with the material over Ah, and over over many years of studying it allows us to recognize that same material in smaller parts. And it's another reason why museums like us and, and around the world have collections for comparative purposes. So we study the dinosaurs, we study these kinds of animals, a variety of different types of forms, mm-hmm. and once you start stel- studying those skeletons in detail, it becomes really easy to identify small portions and parts of them, even when they're broken down, which oh, well. becomes really, really critical because we don't necessarily have to, com- to collect complete skeletons of dinosaurs to recognize that we've got something new. Ah. We can see a part of a skull or a skull bone and go, wow, that's not like any other skull bone that we know of. Oh, interesting. Right? And this will be the mm-hmm. basis why when you guys see media reports, new dinosaur discovered, and you go, wow, that's going to be really cool. And you go, to the, you go to, the, to the actual website or the news source and you go, yeah, researchers found uh, p- part of a skull and a few vertebrae. <laughs> yeah. And they're, they've it's given it a new name. It's a new dinosaur. And you sit there and you go, wait a minute, these guys aren't playing fair. Actually, we are playing fair mm-hmm. because we yeah. know the anatomy so well. Mm-hmm. of all the animals that do exist that we have in collections that we're pretty good at identifying when something doesn't fit. It's probably what gets the creationists all up in, up in <laughs> arms about uh, just human evolution, right? Like we find one rib bone and a couple vertebrae, but the thing is, based on the vertebrae, now correct me if I'm wrong. No, you're, you know, absolutely, I'm just a, you're absolutely yeah, We correct. can tell if it, if it walked on all fours, if it walked right. upright, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, detractors uh, of science, really, uh, if you're looking to, to uh, kind of nullify the science, then it becomes very easy to start poking holes in things that you don't understand. Right, like a failure of imagination. Like, there's a lot of stuff I don't know. I would call it more failure of experience. 
Well, yeah, and then okay. it becomes very easy to build on that. That makes sense. And, and you start setting up your own rules then and say, well, nobody was there, so you can't know, or you don't have the full skeleton. <laughs> but you could so be wrong. You, know. right. you could be wrong yeah. about everything you know. Because like, we're looking at, like, this is a, clearly a vertebrae <laughs> right. here, and a vertebrae mm-hmm. is a vertebrae is a vertebrae. Right. To me. Yeah. To I can look at this and go, vertebrae exactly and right. rib. But, I mean, this could be from a, you know, to my Sorry, eyes, something that is 6,000 years old. But it, for you, where you have this training in the, the different morphology the other, and... The other thing, it's a great question that you've raised, mm-hmm. because the other thing that's very, very important to keep in mind is that as scientists, we don't just stick to strict paleontology in the sense of studying the bones and put blinkers on. We also work with a variety of other kinds of scientists. So we use multiple lines of evidence in our science. Mm-hmm. Right. So we'll use... You know, we work with geologists, we work with comparative anatomists, we work with people that work on the uh, isotope geochemistry. Mm-hmm. When you start looking at the full range of interaction among the scientific community in this area as well as all other areas, you start seeing that all of the scientific ideas that we promote and hypotheses that we test and uh, theories that we uh, work from are all based on multiple lines of evidence. And the more multiple lines of evidence, the more robust they are and the right. more the stronger they are. And of course, that's very frustrating when you have those ideas being attacked, again, by people that don't understand or don't want to understand mm-hmm. that mul- it takes multiple lines of evidence and multiple lines of inquiry to really establish a new idea. So again, getting back to our your little news report you're on the web and you go wow new dinosaur and you jump into that and you'll get you'll get the whole synopsis of the thing this mm-hmm. animal was found in in uh, uh, southern Alberta it's 80 million years old it's a new animal it's got all sorts of horns and spikes it probably you know interacted with other animals this way so on and so forth that's based on a huge amount of information and multiple lines of evidence from uh, right. Geology, radiometric dating, comparative anatomy, functional anatomy, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And, and from the time you find the dinosaur to the time the news report comes out saying you found a new species, I'm sure there's a large gap of time where you've been researching it, you've been looking into it. It's not something that happened overnight and, oh, we opened it up and suddenly, look, it's a new dinosaur. Yes. Yeah. And right? Again, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you guys may be too young to remember this, but the opening scene of the original Jurassic Park movie no. shows, yeah. shows the guy with a, yeah. the, uh, the hero with a, with a paintbrush yeah. sweeping a little bit of sand off. And suddenly really it's a beautiful full... skull and it's like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you wish. We do live for those moments and those things do happen, but they're rare. Right. And what we typically do is this kind of work, what you're looking at here. Something that, to your eye, looks like a huge amount of roadkill. And yeah. we're in the process of, like a jigsaw puzzle, putting it all back together again. Mm-hmm. So I, I hate to jump around, but... Um, Please. When... <laughs> we do. <laughs> when I... So I'm a, I'm a geologist, let's say, uh, and I have discovered this. Um, as far as determining its age, uh, what, where it came from, do you do that exclusively based on what strata it's located in, or do you have to individually test each specimen? Right. Um, that's a great question, and you should always be wary of scientists that say that's a great question, because they're usually setting Whoa. you up for either a long-winded answer or no answer at all. <laughs> in this case, it's the long-winded answer, and I'm going to give you. I'm going to try my best to give you the short version, because. We've done so much work in this geographic area over the last 150 years, 
and because there's been generations of scientists who've already answered a lot of those questions, we don't have to reinvent the wheel over and over again. So if we go down Fair to enough. the Corite mine in the Bearpaw Formation outside of Lethbridge, there's already been a stack of studies that would literally come right up to the top of that door that have been done on those rocks. We don't have to redo all that work. It's already been done. And so we rely in very much like a patchwork quilt on previous studies that have been done. Standing on the shoulders of giants. At the same time, Damn. as scientists, we tend to be very, very open to discovering something that's not quite what we thought. So in other words, we might, somebody might have said in a, in a series of publications, well, you're never going to find uh, this kind of marine reptile in the, in the bear paw in, in rocks that are that age. And all of a sudden, somebody oops. finds one and you, mm -hmm. go, you go, oops, exactly mm -hmm. right. Evolution now, exposed, you've got it right here on Life the Universe. <laughs> so, so the question is, do you think the scientist is more likely to be upset or happy? when that kind of situation occurs. I would say confused happy. and driven to find an, an, an I answer. Think happy. Happy, yeah. happy I think in the happy. short term, happy because yeah. the scientist is thinking, yay, another, another step forward in our knowledge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. B, I also get another paper or two out of this. I get <laughs> yeah. to you know, publish more papers on this. Yeah. And I get to ask more questions as to why, we, why were we wrong in the first place? Yeah. Which is mm -hmm. a fascinating question. And it's that, it, it's that situation, actually, getting back to uh, uh, this whole notion of how creationists come at, at the world. I often will say to audiences that have creationists there, mm -hmm. you know, you, creationists tend to paint the world as though scientists are part of a giant cons conspiracy right. that are trying to, you know, show that this weak theory of evolution is, is actually true and trying to shore it up when it's falsified. Mm -hmm. In point of fact, if any scientist could, could really, really demonstrate that evolution is complete hogwash, let's say we could find really good repeated occurrences of hominid fossils with these dinosaurs in the Cretaceous, mm -hmm. that scientist with multiple locations and multiple evidence would be so famous. The Nobel Prizes. It would be whatever. incredible the success that that the individual funding. would come. Just the ego Just along, the ego triple alone would be fascinating. Mm -hmm. There's no way that, that an, an entire discipline made up of individuals that are driven to compete with each other and discover new things and falsify old ideas, if possible, right. are going to partake in a conspiracy. The, the notion of it is just so silly that it's not even worth considering. So. We, did, we had a similar point made in our last episode, climate change. Uh, we, we took a look at uh, the Glenn Becks and the Rush Limbaugh's and their, and their conspiracy and just exactly what that would take to hide climate change. Right. Thousands of papers, millions of data points, and every single scientist would be busy sweeping in all day long. All in yep. line, <laughs> yeah. working towards this uh, massive conspiracy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, from a sociological point of view, I find it endlessly fascinating that that, that that point of view, the point of view that there's a conspiracy, is usually promoted by the kinds of people who do take a more top-down or a part of a subculture mm -hmm. that is very top-down, where the, where the message comes from the top and is disseminated via a variety of propaganda through the, through the ranks. Mm -hmm. You don't find creationists. I have yet to give talks and have a creationist come up to me with an idea that I haven't heard before. Right. Mm -hmm. it never happens. Mm -hmm. 
I will be there, as I just did on this, this tour through British Columbia, talking about all the new data that we have and all the new discoveries right. on bird evolution from dinosaurs mm -hmm. and showing this patchwork quilt which is similar to the patchwork quilt we see with hominid evolution very very complex different patterns of organisms trying out different forms of flight and mm -hmm. feather usage this is all new information i mean i, sh I was sharing uh, ideas that were still in press that hadn't been published with the audience and again i get the creationists waving old ideas from the 19th century around yeah. the whole notion that there's no new information in in the oh, genome yeah. that you can't create evolution can't create new information that evo that there's no such thing as an intermediate form yeah. when i just spent half an hour showing <laughs> intermediate all these forms. intermediate forms no they're not there so la, that, la, 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 that la. kind of approach of not produ producing anything new is a reflection of a very top-down mentality. It's a propaganda mm -hmm. mentality. And, and we're, we're a bit of, we're a few masochists, I guess. We <laughs> yeah. went to, uh, a few weeks ago, we went to William Lane Craig. And uh, oh it, was pretty, it was pretty amazing to see someone stand up and, and just use arguments that have seriously been refuted for so many times. a millennia. Yeah. Like some of, them, some of them dated back to, you know, 900 A.D., and they were refuted by great thinkers back then, and they've been yep. refuted by great thinkers ever since. We are actually very big masochists. We've been to geocentrist <laughs> talks. We've been to talks on creation. We've been to creation museums. We've been to museums, quote unquote. Um, it's just it's just the gambit goes on. So yeah, it's one of the reasons why scientists don't like debating creationists. And I you know, and you I hope are, you don't. You you understand this a waste you know, of time. very, very well. Mm -hmm. That uh, the only successful debate I've seen between a creationist and a scientist was uh, a fellow named Chris McGowan, who actually worked on marine reptiles at, at the University of Toronto okay. in the ROM for many, many years. He's retired now. Great guy, great speaker, killer sense of humor. But he was debating uh, Dwayne Gish when I was okay. at U, U of T as, oh, no, a, as, an as a graduate student. And he basically refused to talk science in that mm. debate. His whole focus was simply on, listen, people, do you, if you are here sincerely to dis make up your mind, then here's what you need to do. You need to pick up the Bible, and you need to in embrace the literacy of this Bible, and let's start exploring some of those literal ideas mm -hmm. in detail, because that's what the creationists will never do. Mm -hmm. They'll never stand there and start talking about, you know, all the, all the problems with their own literacy, you know, the, right. the literal interpretations of the Bible. And it was hilarious. It was absolutely, you know, rockingly entertaining. And at one point, Chris marches across the stage. He's a short man, and he puts his arm around Dwayne Gish, and he says, "Come on, Dwayne, tell him what you really think. Don't hold back. Come on." <laughs> it was just wonderful, and it was wonderful because there was no—it wasn't an attack on science. It was no longer science wasn't even giving credence to this clown on the stage. Wow. Mm -hmm. It was very effective. All right. So what I'm going to do is turn on a couple of lights here. The fact that we have a relationship with many of the companies that are um, mining uh, heavy oil uh, out of the uh, the oil sands up north, and one of uh, one of the advantages of that relationship, as I said before, is that occasionally you'll find some really cool specimens. Well, we got a phone call one time uh, from Suncor, and uh, we drove up to uh, our team, not me, our team drove up, and. 
started looking at a specimen, this thing that you're looking at in front of you. And you want to also look at this block behind here. Right. And um, they had been led to believe that it was another marine reptile. And so I can almost imagine the conversation in the truck drive up. Oh, my gosh, another marine reptile. <laughs> Just what we need. I wish, I wish they would find some dinosaurs up there. Yeah. These are marine rocks, and there right. are no marine dinosaurs. All dinosaurs were terrestrial animals. Right. right. So joking around about that they get up there and then they start finding some really peculiar things about this specimen and again you're going to have to use your, your eyesight there a little bit mm -hmm. but if you look at this block in front of us over here you'll see that it's made up of these this this sort of rhombic pattern right. of features yeah. those are all scales on the back of an ankylosaur and oh just way. to have some fun there's there a little is. model that's used yeah right this is a fully terrestrial animal animal right would have okay. been a dinosaur and it's found in marine rocks and the marine rocks it was found in up at the oil sands uh, had the animal preserved completely upside down which makes sense if the animal had been washed out to sea okay in a storm let's say yeah. he's top heavy yeah all the scaling and osteoderms on the back flips upside down Eventually, the animal's dead, of course, and the, and the gut cavity explodes. The animal sinks to the bottom and eventually gets covered in marine shales. Okay. And that's exactly what we have here. What's extremely cool about this is that this animal is about 110 million years old. Oh, wow. Now, most of the dinosaurs, as I said before, most of the dinosaurs in this pro province that we have access to at the surface are 80 to 65 million years old. Oh, wow. So now we have a dinosaur from 110 million years old that's preserved because it got uniquely preserved in marine rocks. Mm -hmm. We would never otherwise go to those marine rocks to find dinosaurs. We find all mm -hmm. such sorts of other invertebrates. So, so that sort of opens up a new door of, right. of discovery. So this you. is an extremely important specimen to us. Well, and they must have just and it's just an incredibly unique opportunity. And again, found by an operator who was working at night Oh, wow. In one of those giant machines, yeah. you know, taking the yeah. overburden off mm -hmm. to get down to the oil sands. And these guys, like anybody that does something over a long period of time, they get to know their tools and their equipment real well. Mm -hmm. And he went, that ain't right. Looked at the block sitting, coming out of the cliff. There's mm -hmm. something not right about that. I haven't seen that before. Right. Climbs down out of the truck, and the truck's like halfway up to the roof in this building. Yeah. And walks over and sure enough, starts seeing this pattern. So there's an example of why it's worth our time to go up every time we get a phone call from oh, these no guys. Kidding. You never know what you're going to find. No, but now your, your team must be excited sometimes. They, yeah. like, they go up there now and, oh, maybe we can find another bit. What you're looking at here is part of the skull. Oh, nice. So we have part of the skull of this animal as well. And uh, tip of the nose down here. So all these uh, marks here are tooling marks. Yeah, these are from the tools that we use to extract mm -hmm. And in fact, I can show you how those work. They're little okay. mini jackhammers. There's one right here. Yep. Let me just plug it into a to a air socket air there system, and it's just a mini jackhammer, the same kind of tool that would be used, except mm -hmm. a little cruder, mm -hmm. uh, perhaps by a dentist on your on your teeth. <laughs> <Okay>. Excellent. <laughs> Chip away that plaque. Yeah. So when was this? Quick These are carbide tips, so they're very very hard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When was this uh, discovered? was, uh, I believe it was two and a half years ago. Okay. Now it's going to take, which is the segue to that is it's going to take one technician working on that specimen probably, 
oh, another year and a half to two years. So you're looking at a total of five years from discovery to preparation. Wow. Oh, wow. And so from once it's prepared, then how does it dis- go from here to display? We'll Just put this one on display for out. sure. And, and there'll be, there's already a team that's going to be working on um, describing this animal. It'll pro- it will probably be a new taxon. And we can say that mm-hmm. scientifically just based on the fact that geographically we have no ankylosaurs mm-hmm. of that age from this region. Right. We have footprints of mm-hmm. that age in BC and a little bit in Alberta, but we don't have any skeletal material. Interesting. And the nearest skeletons of ankylosaurs of that age are down in Utah. Oh, wow. And just like modern animals, hmm. Though the bigger your geographic range is, the less likely it is that you've got one species covering that range. Mm-hmm. It's not impossible. It could migrate. And the morphology of yeah, mm-hmm. the morphology will tell us whether or not it's a new taxon. But Interesting. It's, the odds are it will be a new taxon. Well, that would be exciting. That is amazing. Yeah, cool. for Alberta. Ankylosaur Albertus. <laughs> did I just did I just name that? Can we? Yeah, that's the Gregosaur. That's <laughs> the Gregosaur. <laughs> That you've been talking about. It's really about. good at catching butterflies. The <laughs> That's an interesting rock. Yeah, it's a pelvis. It almost looks like concrete. This is uh, sandstone? Yeah, it's a sandstone. It's got a lot of um, uh, green mineral in it mm-hmm. um, that can uh, form as a result of some of the bacterial activity. This is another marine reptile. And it changes the color? Like I've noticed a lot of, yep. it looks like moisture almost. Well, on. Uh, what we do is we put a consolidant and a preservative okay. on this. So you would re- t- typically refer to those as glues, which isn't quite appropriate. Mm-hmm. We use very, very dilute and uh, thin uh, types of plastic solvents okay. that will actually penetrate the bone and then as the um, portions of it evaporate then it will hold and strengthen the bone so they're consol- or they're acting as consolidants more than glue and that ends up giving it kind of that bright or shiny appearance but the green that you see in the sandstone is probably a fu- function of a mer- mineral called glauconite okay which is quite uh, well um, established in marine uh, rocks of Mesozoic age and early tertiary age and typically glauconite occurs as a as the breakdown component of other uh, invertebrates soft-bodied okay. invertebrates that are working through the soil and leaving their feces behind oh, and okay. interacting with the mineralogy creating this green mineral uh, clay mineral called glauconite interesting very very characteristic cool so what we have here is just some what's called bone bed material these are elements from a uh, uh, Horned dinosaurs. Think Triceratops, mm-hmm. but not. Okay. So, basic Triceratops morphology. Mm-hmm. What we have at places like Dinosaur Provincial Park are bone beds that are the size of football fields, mm-hmm. and they are concentrations of bones, typically from one taxon of horned dinosaur, Ceratopsian dinosaur, and. These rich concentrations of bone, because they're coming from only one kind of dinosaur, uh, tells us that those animals must have been together in life before they died. Right. 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 It's unrealistic to think of all those skeletal elements representing hundreds of individuals and possibly low thousands, Mm -hmm. but certainly hundreds, Mm -hmm. all being swept together by some agency 
Yeah. But leaving all the other dinosaurs alone. <laughs> right. right. Not bringing all the other dinosaurs in. Yeah. Right. So it, the, the logical interpretation is those animals were together when they died and then were buried. Mm-hmm. And indeed, um, these what we call monotypic or monogeneric, monotaxic bone beds, they have a variety of different terms, produce not only the remains of these animals, but the remains of these same animals at different ages, different oh. sizes. Right, as okay, the animals yeah. were growing up. So yeah. we'll get babies, and we'll get young ones, and we'll get sub-adults, Males, teenagers, and then we'll get yeah. adults. Mm-hmm. And what's really cool about it is that by having bones from all these different growth stages in the life history of these animals, we're able to tell how the animal's morphology changed through time. It right. turns out mm-hmm. the dinosaurs really, uh, as a group, tend to look very, very different from... Uh, from the babies, from the adults. Okay. And it allows us to answer questions like, why do we have so many dinosaurs in the first place? Maybe some of those dinosaurs that we thought were different are simply different growth stages right. of one kind of dinosaur. Interesting. So it'll, the bone beds become extremely powerful means of, of testing that. This won't make much sense to you without a comparative uh, analog, but this is a jaw from a, a baby dinosaur, a baby I was going to uh, say that looks like a dinosaur, jaw. Right? So here's the coronoid mm-hmm. process where the jaw muscles attach, allow the, the animal to close the jaw. That's the front. That's the back. This is the tooth sockets. The teeth have fallen out uh, already in this thing. But the jaw is, a, is as long as you can stretch your hand. And the entire skull on this animal would be about that long. Right. Oh, wow. Now, think triceratops. Reasonably mm-hmm. large now, I don't think I have to convince you too hard that triceratops skulls are a little a foot, longer right? than that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, again, a beautiful example. We can we can just put all these growth series together, mm-hmm. and we can see how different parts of the skull and skeleton grow at different rates. Really, really cool. Really, really cool indeed. So, with that point, um, if we were identifying a modern day species that died last week, we would have things like. Um, its organs, its skin, eyes, all sorts of various features um, to identify whether or not it was a different species. Um, how, what are the things that you have, um, aside from just, I guess it's morphology, uh, to determine how many species you have in this particular bone bed? Well, like, uh, if I understand your question, I mean, really what we rely on is the osteology, the skeletons. We don't have the soft tissue. Right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah we don't right, have yeah. all these other wonderful things. We don't have the behaviors. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we can infer that these animals were gregarious, were herding. I don't like using the word herding because mm-hmm. it, it, it's loaded. It, you know, we tend to think of herding in terms of a mammalian model. Mm-hmm. Okay. And these aren't mammals. So right. I tend to, tend to prefer things like gregarious or grouping that doesn't, doesn't say why they're grouping. Herding ha- carries connotations. Right. Right. I see. But anyway, no, that's, the fact that you have these animals all together, we've got a little bit of paleobiological information. We've got a little bit of behavioral information that at mm-hmm. some point during a year or during their lives, they all got together. Why is that? Was it for breeding purposes? Were they migrating through the area? All of those, to, to answer those questions, takes a lot more information. So we're quite limited, you know, aside from a little bit of paleobiology and paleoecology that we can do, we're, we're pretty much limited to what we see in terms of the, the skeletal material. And, you know, beyond that, um, it really does become a game of 
looking into the bones. I'm going to give you, show you a section of broken bone here. It would be a little tough to see, but I think you can. Uh, it's not entirely convincing. Right. But that's a section through this part of this humerus. Mm -hmm. And when you get into the center of the bone, it gets very porous. Okay. Right? Okay. Extremely porous. The marrow in your own bone shows the same mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. features, right? When you get into the center, it's much more porous. When you're out on the side, it's much, it's much right. denser. The what we call the cortical bone. Um, if we were to take thin sections of this shaft, and if we were to go back to the bone bed and take all the humeri, the upper arm bones, okay. that we could get of this animal, and let's say we had as I've just showed you with the jaw, let's say we had a growth series of little guys up to big guys, right? Mm -hmm. And if we took those thin sections and we look at those thin sections under a microscope, we'll see that the bone growth patterns are very, very different. Okay. That the way that the babies are growing requires that new bone is being deposited constantly. Mm -hmm. These animals are okay. growing, in my opinion, they're growing faster than we understand mammals to grow. Right. They grow at bird-like rates when they're young, and then they slow right down. Their growth rates come up very, very sharply. Very steep and then plateau. Yeah. Plateau right. right out. And so they're incredibly fast-growing animals. I mean, over the course, of, in our estimates, uh, over the course of half a year, these animals would go from being able to sit in your hand to being about as big as a, uh, a, a medium-sized dog. Oh, wow. Right, into the size range. So do you see fusion of the growth plates and that's how you know that you're looking at an yes. adult? Yeah, okay. exactly right. Excellent. Very good. Excellent. Yeah, we'll look in the skull in particular in a, on the vertebrae. So the, like your vertebrae have a centrum mm -hmm. and then you have neural arches and then you have a spine. Mm -hmm. right? You can feel the spine just running to your thumb down the back. Mm -hmm. um, in all of these, this is a generality and there is exceptions, but in all of these animals as they get bigger, um, those different growth centers will tend to ossify and fuse up. So we'll okay. find that the neural arches will be fused to the centra and the neural arches uh, will be well fused with the neural spine. Interesting. And that tells us that the animal's much more mature okay. than others that don't show that. Nice. Cool. That is very cool. Um, so I'm going to show you one more thing. And sure. It relates to this block. This, all the, if I took all the plastic off that block, it would just be this big gray blob, okay? And I'd go, there's bone in there. And you'd go, okay. Thanks. There's some darker-looking <laughs> stuff. Darker gray and lighter gray. Fine. Okay. Let's go look at what, what we actually pulled out of there. This is exquisite. So we're in a big room full of casts. So the block that you saw in the other room... Is this the, the sea dragon from no, the exhibit? No? No, no, okay. no, this is another one. Okay. And uh, one of the prettiest, oh, that is certainly a, a, not a hard sell in terms of what it is. Mm -hmm. You're looking at uh, a marine reptile, a mosasaur. Mm -hmm. And its uh, tip of the snout is there, orbit is here. So that's mm -hmm. the top of the skull. That's the left side of the skull. Okay. And uh, back of the skull here. And that's where the jaw articulates down here. Oh, wow. You can see that. A huge lever on that. Yeah, no kidding. Okay. I wouldn't want to be a bit bone on And bones. the musculature would attach to the jaw here. So even so, with the lever here and the muscu musculature here, it's not what you'd call a strong jaw, but it's certainly a fast jaw. Right? The closer right. the musculature inserts to the right. fulcrum, it's going to be able to move fast, but it's not going to be very strong. Okay. If you want it to be strong, put your musculature out here. 
I see. Right? It's like any lever. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, the cool thing, well, there's multiple cool things about this. <laughs> cool. Um, is that this guy has a tooth stuck in its jaw. Oh, wow. Here. Yeah, I was wondering what that was. Right? So, so this, this kind of tooth is also stuck in the back jaw. It's not laying on the bone. It's actually in the bone. So it, it, it's very clear that before this animal was buried and before, thus before it was fossilized, somebody came along and took a bite out of it. So, so how can you tell whether that tooth was embedded pre or post-mortem? Oh, um, yeah, if it's going to be pre-mortem, Mm-hmm. within reason. I mean, you, now we could get into splitting hairs and say, well, it happened an hour before the animal died. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Right. But typically what we find are what are called osteopathologies okay. in lots of dinosaurs and large vertebrates, be they marine or non-marine. And those osteopathologies represent places where there's been an accident, if you will, <laughs> just to be gentle about it, an accident <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. And then the bone is tried to heal. Oh, right. So there's no healing. Right. Okay. Yes. There's no evidence of healing, which brings me back to that splitting hairs. Okay, it's no healing, but maybe it happened just before the animal died. Maybe it's the reason that the animal died. Interesting. It's more likely, uh, if you just play the game out with modern comparisons of what happens in modern ecosystems, it's more likely that the animal died and somebody came along and went, whoa, look at all that meat. I got one more thing to show you. Cool. And then we'll wrap, it, wrap it up. This is great. This was just in the news. Yes, uh, is this the one from Okotoks? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so it's a, it's a block of very fine sandstone, siltstone. And if you look carefully, this is gorgeous over here. You'll, you'll find that there are three-dimensional fish preserved in it. There's 17 different fish, individual fish. And these are uh, essentially what we call lepizosteus. They're gar pikes. Okay. Uh, from the after the age of dinosaurs. This rock is about 60 million years old. So wow. 5 million years younger than the extinction event of mm -hmm. the dinosaurs. And what's cool about it is again, because there's two things going on here. The rock itself um, is made up of sand. It's gritty, if you just feel it. It's very, very gritty. Yes. <coughs> and it has a lot of iron in it. So as a result of the sand and the iron, these fish are three-dimensional, so we're pretty excited about that. Oh, wow. Instead of being okay. flattened down, which is usually the way that we find fish, because they're usually found in shales. Right. And, and they have no, the shales have, they no, have no definition. The fish, the fish are two-dimensional, and we've got our specialists who work on fish who spend all their time under the microscope, you know, picking the individual bones apart. Okay. So we're pretty excited to have three-dimensional individual fish preserved in this block. This Anything was great. I had a few free-floating questions, I sure. guess. Sure. Um, was there, um, so in your childhood, what made you decide to become a paleontologist? I, uh, a lot of paleontologists uh, were taken by fossils when they were, when they were kids. They were very interested in, in fossils. Uh, n not so much for me. I tended to, uh, I really enjoyed it, you know, being out in the wilderness and exploring the, you know, the, the mountain area that we lived in when I was growing up, but I wasn't particularly interested in fossils or science. And I really didn't become interested until uh, I took a, a couple of courses in university. And once I started putting it all together, in terms of, uh, you know, this long evolutionary history of life on the planet and the geological history, I, that, that was it for me. I was, I was completely hooked. So by the time I was uh, 20, I would say 24, 
that's when I really got the bug for it. So I came came to this business late by most okay. standards. It, I wasn't interested in the cereal box dinosaurs. And <laughs> okay. did, you, did you start here or did you go... Uh, at this museum? At this museum? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, I came up here to work here for five years. I was going to stay here for five years and then go somewhere else. And, uh, and you haven't left? I haven't left. It's just a dream job. It's a perfect yeah. job. It's how a does job. How does someone else get the dream job? Spend a lot of time in school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a lot of a lot of people will come to the sciences um, via their personality. Right. Right. They just find it's a comfortable place to be um, because you're you're getting answers to questions. Mm -hmm. um, I found for myself that I certainly certainly uh, was attracted to science because of that when I was younger. But of course, what happens as you get older? You learn that science, like everything else, is a moving target. And right. It's part of the definition of science, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Everything's provisional at some level. Right. Um, and in point of fact, um, I find that I'm less interested in that aspect of science as I've gotten older. Okay. I'm more interested now in how science interacts with society and vice versa. Right. And again, those questions about creationists and how we can live in a, in a technologically advanced society and have those kinds of beliefs. Exactly. You know, controlling our, our or, or at least influencing our political agendas. To me, that's infinitely fascinating. Oh, I know. And uh, so I'm, I'm less interested in doing the, uh, doing the, the individual um, sort of in the trenches scientific work these days. And I tend to, to do more synthetic work and looking at science and, and culture, science and society. Yeah, we're, the, we're both the same. That's, yeah. that's basically what we're trying to do is, is bring science to the masses and say, you know what, it's not scary, it's not just for nerds, it's for everybody. Scientists, are, s scientists generally speaking, I can, I can just use an example with the, the scientists that we have at this museum, uh, the active scientific staff here, which numbers nine, when you include postdocs and, right. and uh, visiting scholars and so on and so forth. Small, very small contingent of scientists, actually. But um, they tend to avoid those types of um, uh, situations where they're engaged with the public, right. talking about higher order issues of science and society. They're very, very comfortable with the public talking about their science, right. talking about what they're working on in their lab. But the, the broader implications and what it means and, and uh, you know, what it means for a lot of things, our school systems, our education systems, so on and so forth, political mm -hmm. um, uh, activities and how we move forward on issues like climate change and evolution and, yeah. you know, how we train the next generation and, t and teach our children. Um, most scientists are ill-adapted to deal with that by the very nature that they tend to focus so much on the known and don't want to talk about things that tend to be a little woolly or rough around the edges mm -hmm. um, and it's an interesting paradox that you're the few advocates of science who are you know, who are scientists who are very well spoken and very passionate about those issues those meta mm -hmm. level issues um, you know are leaned on very heavily but when you actually look at the landscape of scientists how many people there are out there very few of them are willing to go that route that's that's quite a shame, uh, but uh, they get it brings into uh, the need for having to have uh, scientific cheerleaders, people out there to rah rah and and be an intermediary to speak to the voting public and say, hey, you know what, this isn't all 
back door, back yeah, closet stuff. You, it's this is accessible and it's interesting, and you should be paying attention to this. Yeah, I would agree with that. Mm -hmm. I would, um, how that actually happens is a work in progress. Yeah, it's. I think yeah. it's still I mean, relatively if you're in, new. If you're in med school, or you know, or in, I don't know what what level you're at in your education, but yeah, I did a grad degree before this, so yeah. I'm familiar with. Kind I mean, of you the you see all all shades of things that you like and you don't like about yeah. it. Yeah, you see absolutely. the competitive aspects of it that bring can bring out, frankly, the best and the worst in people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's a human endeavor. <laughs> oh yes, absolutely. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, and it's interesting, like you say, science does bring in this particular personality type that isn't necessarily the type that's going to go out and engage right. on the front lines and is more, you know, like I'll talk about my research all day, any day, but in the same way, yeah, yeah. like I'm. It's also a career move thing because it is so competitive, and you don't necessarily want to be the public eye, um, saying things which are controversial, right? Yeah, that, and uh, I mean that's another interesting topic. I mean this this is a provincial museum. Mm -hmm. um, I tend to be fairly outspoken and, and <laughs> am very comfortable in that, but that's a personality trait. That's <laughs> right. Go figure. Yeah. yeah. Right? Other people are not going to want to go on a tour, you know, speaking about creationism. Oh, yeah. I know. I across BC, whereas I can't just wait. You know, I just <laughs> let me at it. You know, come on. <laughs> it's exciting. Right? Well, how do you deal with the one just up the road there? I don't. You know, <laughs> they don't come down here and troll you guys or anything. I, there's an irony to what what goes on here. Um, in the town of Drumheller, um, the Tyrrell Museum gets a visitation of about 400,000 people a year, plus or minus, doesn't matter. That's mm -hmm. a lot of people for this yeah. town. This town uh, has, what, 8,000, it's a population of 8,000, and when you include the surrounding area. So you're, you're looking at 50 times the t size of the town <laughs> is coming through. Uh, it doesn't take much imagination to realize that that's a heck of an economic driver. Yeah, mm. uh, one leg in a you know multi-leg stool, as it were, of, right. of economic activity in this community. Um, the organized uh, religious elements who you know would subscribe to creationism and who are also involved at some level in the politics of the town mm -hmm. and the economic development of the town mm -hmm. are not so far gone that they don't realize that overt attacks on the museum are unhealthy. <laughs> right. Right. Which is really interesting when you think about it. Mm -hmm. uh, interesting from the point of view of, of, you know, that these people really aren't that far gone. They're not so far gone that no. they can't be reached by economic <coughs> realities and social right. realities. Right. You know, I mean, you don't want to be, you know, marching around with your placades outside the museum. And that's probably never happened. It hasn't. It? I'm, a, I'm no? actually, I'm actually quite. Uh, pleased with the when we did the Darwin exhibit here in 2009 to celebrate yeah. Darwin's 200th birthday and 150th birthday of mm -hmm. Origin of Species. Mm -hmm. you know, we had uh, there was a great amount of trepidation in Edmonton about whether the museum would be targeted in some way, mm -hmm. unknown way, but targeted nonetheless. And specimens right. were secured, overly secured, and nothing mm -hmm. carefully, and nothing happened. Mm -hmm. And we got the same amount of you know, idiotic comments in our guest book <laughs> from the creationists. Oh, really? There was no more and no less. Okay. Sure. It was really a big nothing. So you mentioned a bit about your research, the non-social aspects of research. What kind of projects do you have ongoing? Uh, so I'm writing a book on creationism in Canada. Oh, right awesome. Now. Uh, and I'm, one of the things, I started this project quite a long time ago, actually, because uh, it's a side project. And right. I just do it mm -hmm. on my own time. But one of the things that I found 
uh, in doing immense amount of reading and research on this is that many people have been through this this patch of weeds before me and mm -hmm. so those trails are pretty well beaten down yeah they are mm -hmm. in terms of you know looking at what this issue is and what drives it um, in all its complexity um, but one of the things that I'm finding I, that is not in the, a lot of that literature are anecdotes and personal uh, stories of mm -hmm. what people think and how they express themselves on this topic okay so uh, this recent little mini tour I did in BC was for me was just fantastic okay because I got to talk with people in communities just like yourselves like myself mm -hmm. right who are on the front lines and on both sides of the issue okay I mean I'm happy to talk to creation I'm not happy to to be lectured by their ignorant points of view but I'm happy well, yeah. to talk to them about yeah. why they think this is so important Mm -hmm. That I I'm o totally open to. Oh yes, right. I agree. It's but I'm not in, I'm not interested in hearing this information. Being preached to is never <laughs> you know, fun. I mean, it's that nice they, to that they have information that they haven't themselves mm -hmm. collected. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That they're just repeating, like little parrots. Yeah. I mean, I find that boring. The Discovery Institute's tropes and right. Yeah. Um, but so what I'm doing is to answer your question is mm -hmm. I'm I'm trying to put myself out there more, and uh, give more talks and interact with more people. Awesome. And get a get a more of a personalized view on this, and it, and then interleave that that personal perspective and those anecdotes with the, the well beaten path. <laughs> <laughs> you know mm -hmm. why this why this is happening in our society and our culture. Cool, that sounds really I'm interesting. It, I'm finding it fun. I'm, I'm yeah. It. So if anyone is listening that they're and they're a creationist and they want to come give you an anecdote to tell. Are there any talks coming up that you're giving? Yeah, or can send me an email or if they want to. And send I you an if email? I think, <laughs> I think it's an intelligent question that's sincere, I'll respond. If, if it's just mm -hmm. propaganda, the yeah. same old thing that's being said since the 19th century. Yeah. yeah. No. Not yet. Why are there still monkeys? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Why are there still creationists? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because there's still monkeys. I thought all creationists evolved into people that accept evolution apparently they didn't no we're, we're getting there so how can, it's we, convergent how can evolution. we both have evolution people that accept evolution and creationists at the same time it's the same it's the same answer very nice <laughs> very nice all right so in one of your um i think it was imagine no religion uh just a, a kind of an obscure fact that kind of tweaked my imagination you mentioned that you had lived through three different instinct extinction model paradigms yeah I only remember learning about the comet. Exactly. Uh, what are the other two? Because you're a young man. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's the volcano one, right? It, would that be super volcano or just a just random volcano? Well, there was, a, there was a period of time prior to 1979 when this question and questions related to extinct major extinction events in Earth history were posed frequently and, and uh, particularly in Earth science classes. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the... Uh, big paradigms that was being developed uh, just prior to um, the impact model uh, was uh, having to do with uh, the climate, the nature of the climate and what's called equability. So the extremes of climate going from the poles to the equator. And uh, there was a team working on uh, looking at the breakdown of that equability, that Mesozoic equability, that um, perhaps with the climate becoming much more extreme at the poles and the, and the equator, that there were partitioning, there was a partitioning of sub-environments and sub-climates, and that that was 
had a, a deleterious effect on dinosaurs, particularly given that dinosaurs had evolved into a relatively low diversity group of animals. At the end mm -hmm. of the Cretaceous, we do find at the, certainly at the generic level, that there's very few species in any given genus. Okay. In the camp 75 million years ago, so 10 million years earlier, we typically find that there's two or three on average species okay. per genus. When you get up to the close to the KT boundary, you find that there's typically 1.2 or 1.1 on average species per genus. So there's a de decreasing diversity at the generic level. So, so what does that, any ecosystem that we know of, and this is just big picture arm wavy stuff, okay? And I'm pulling this from the 1960s. Any um, ecosystem that goes, that undergoes declining diversity is susceptible to major perturbations. Mm -hmm. You stand a much better mm -hmm. chance if you're an ecosystem if you have greater diversity of surviving. You have less chance surviving under major perturbations, whatever those perturbations are, an asteroid impact, you name it, right? Volcanoes exploding, you, right. you pick your disaster, right. it doesn't matter. Your chances of surviving as an ecosystem or an uh, ecological uh, or a, a, gr a taxonomic group within an, an ecology or variety of ecologies is far greater with greater diversity. So it was mm -hmm. seeing that was that was the first paradigm, right? The second paradigm was the actual impact of the right kay. with the uh, uh, and being directly responsible. And the third paradigm is what I call a, a more, it's basically a sophisticated. You could call it 2.0 impact mm. 2.0 which shows much more, much greater uh, diversity of uh, effect okay. um, of chain, a, a, a chain link, as it were, of cause and effect resulting from the impact. So we've gotten far more sophisticated. Okay. And, uh, Interesting. We're in the point now, at mm -hmm. this museum, many of us who work on that end of the Cretaceous, because that's what the rocks are here, we work on that end of the Cretaceous project, we're seeing real changes in the ecosystems here leading up to the KT boundary. So we're kind of moving back towards, mm. we're taking a little bit of that pre-1979 ideology and, and seeing if it fits into the, into the models. So the, it's not a done deal. Not yet. Not yet. Mm. And that's the moving target nature of science. And that's mm -hmm. what makes it wonderful. On behalf of Life, the Universe, and Everything Else, our hosts for this episode, uh, Robert and Rochelle, uh, I would like to offer our immense gratitude to Dr. David Eberth for taking the time out of his incredibly busy schedule to show us around and give us a look at the inner workings of the Tyrell Museum. Sorry, Rob, what was that? So, see, look, okay, as we're driving through the, the canyons, look, see, coal layers, coal layers, lots of coal layers. Look at that. Great, okay, so. Keeping our eyes on the road. Keeping our eyes on the road. Oops. Being safe drivers at all being times. Being safe drivers, there's a stop sign. That Just was the coolest day ever! Yeah! Holy dinosaurs! So, I have to, I have to put this, this in there is since I was a kid, they've had that window at the Terrell Museum. We're going to link up, show some pictures in the show notes. Um, 
where you can see inside and you can see the the guys working and the, the, the people, sorry, the people working on the dinosaurs and digging them out and that. And I've always, always wanted to go there. And we were there. We were so there. The museum opened in 1985. It's been... 27 years. 27, 27 years. And I just really wanted to go in there. And I did. And I so did. And it was just... And we got to touch the fossils that no one else has seen yet. Oh That's my right. god! Yeah. We yeah. were, uh, yeah, we were part of the exhibit. I mean, uh, there were people That's walking right. around going, hey, uh, are those fossils? Yeah. And at well, least we'd a say, couple people took our pictures because they saw the flash. They, they were looking like, at us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah right. So we're basically famous. We are. All so thanks to. Uh, to famous. Yeah, we are. Yeah. We're, we're, yeah. yeah. Riding on the coattails of the awesomeness uh, that is the Terrell Museum. Of dinosaurs. Well, and our special guest, uh, Dr. David Eberth. Who was, uh, you know, so cordial. So, signing off uh, in a car, uh, heading back to wonderful Calgary, Alberta, we have Robert Schindler. Hello! Uh, we're actually saying goodbye. Oh. Yeah, they're okay. Uh, Rochelle McCullough. That's what a Rochellosaurus sounds like. And Greg Christensen. You've been listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. You can email your questions, comments, or criticisms to us at lueepodcast at winnipegskeptics.com, or you can reach us on Twitter or Facebook at slash lueepodcast. Our music is produced by the very talented Ian Young.